If you had been a soldier standing guard on the wall surrounding Jerusalem that Sunday morning so long ago, it would have been your job to keep a close watch on all the movements going in and out of the city gates. It had been a tense week in Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of pilgrims flooded into the city for the Passover celebration. The streets were crowded, elbow to elbow, and tensions ran hot between the Jews and the occupying Roman army. People were on edge, soldiers on high alert. And to top it all off, a rabble-rousing preacher led some palm parade that got the crowds all worked up. And then he staged a one-man riot in the temple of all places. So the city's religious power brokers thought he was getting out of hand, pressured the Romans to do something about it. Money changed hands. There was a betrayal, a midnight arrest, a, a hasty trial followed by a mob scene outside Pontius Pilate's palace. The preacher actually said he was a king with a kingdom. Not a smart thing to say in front of Pontius Pilate because Pilate knew well how to play the Game of Thrones. So this troublemaker ended up nailed to a cross by the garbage dump outside of town with all the rest of the criminals and misfits. And that was the end of that, or so it seemed. It was April. The rainy season had just ended, so the early morning air was still bitterly cold and the atmosphere decidedly damp. It was dark. The sun's rays were just now breaking over the crest of the Mount of Olives. And then you notice something odd, some women huddled close together silently and obtrusively, making their way out of Jerusalem through the garden gate, long before most people were awake. They didn't look suspicious, just, just odd for a Sunday morning. Where exactly were they heading at this early hour? And what were they carrying kind of wrapped up in their cloaks? This small group of women tentatively made their way into the garden just outside the city walls. The, the garden was really one side of a quarry area that was no longer used for mining. Nearby, there was an outcrop of rock that had been transformed into burial sites. Graves were, were carved out of the stone like caves, big enough for a grown man to stand upright. These were upscale mausoleums reserved for the rich. The grave the women sought belonged to a wealthy merchant named Joseph from Arimathea. But his body wasn't entombed there, no. On Friday, he had bravely asked Pilate for the body of that rabble-rousing preacher after the business end of a spear shoved into his chest confirmed that Jesus was indeed dead. Joseph of Arimathea. He took Jesus' lifeless body from the cross and had it placed in the grave and the tomb sealed. Pilate ordered Roman soldiers to guard the grave to make sure there was no monkey business with the corpse. The women had a lot on their minds. They had a solemn and unpleasant duty to perform to finish anointing the body of Jesus for a proper burial. There hadn't been time on Friday to correctly wrap his lifeless corpse with all the layers of spices as was their custom. Between the hour of his death and sundown, which marked the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath, there just wasn't time to do it right as they stood in the tomb. And you couldn't possibly have contact with a corpse on a Sabbath. Such contamination was strictly forbidden. Though their lives had been broken by a tragedy far beyond their worst nightmares, they did what they could for Jesus. But more had to be done to do it right. So they owed that much to Jesus. So early that dawn on Sunday was their first opportunity. After an anxious night of waiting for the rooster to crow, the fearful women went to his tomb, wondering how they would possibly talk their way past the Roman soldiers guarding the grave, and move that big circular stone that sealed the entrance. As it turned out, 
they never accomplished what they set out to do. They never finished embalming the body of Jesus, yet their journey to his tomb would become one of the most famous odysseys in human history. The story of their somber arrival at the tomb of Jesus in the early midst of a Jerusalem dawn would be told and retold again and again throughout the entire world, in every language, every nation, in every century, ever since. They were about to stumble upon an event which would completely change their lives, the whole of human history, and in fact, the whole of eternity. This was the beginning of something big. Looking back on it now, we know that particular dawn is literally the central point in human history. The moment when God fully revealed His master plan for the universe. And the astonishing announcement came in the form of three simple words spoken by an angel. He is risen. Those three words didn't make a lot of sense to the women who first heard them. Their minds were still stuck on three other words that they had heard on Friday afternoon as they stood at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die. The last words Jesus spoke before he had no more breath to speak. It is finished. It is finished. What did those three words mean to the women huddled at the foot of the cross? What did those words mean to the soldiers who stood guard or the gawkers who had nothing better to do than to watch this sad spectacle? Well, there are a couple of ways you can look at that. To some, Jesus' words from the cross probably sounded like a cry of desperation. Like when you're having a root canal done on one of your teeth and after what seems to be hours and hours of the dentist drilling and he's got his hands all the way up to his elbows inside of your mouth and finally he says, all done. And all you can say is, thank God that's over. Maybe, maybe that's what Jesus meant. Maybe Jesus sensed his death was coming and his pain would soon be at an end and what was finished, what was finished was his suffering. If so, it was a pathetic end. And left those who had hoped in him, those who had loved him, left them engulfed in despair. Or there's another way to hear those words. Now to be honest, in the ancient Greek language that the Gospels were written in, it's really only one word. But it takes three English words to translate it. The one word was tetelestai. And it's translated, it is finished. The word was used primarily in two ways. The first was financial. Tetelestai was the word used to describe when a debt had been paid in full, the moment you sign the check and you pay off your home mortgage or that car loan or that, or that college tuition loan. You could shout Tetelestai because it means you're now debt-free. Whatever is owed is all paid off. The debt is canceled, and that's a moment of joy. So it could be that that's what Jesus meant when he said, It is finished. Maybe it meant that he had completely paid the debt of sin and had fulfilled the mission to be the Savior of all the world. No longer were people trapped under the weight of sin and death because the holiness of God had been satisfied by his sacrifice. His work was done and grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, came flooding in, available to all who would receive it. The Apostle Paul describes this moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God caused Christ, who himself knew nothing of sin, actually to be sin for our sake, so that in Christ we might be made good with the goodness of God. With his last breath, Jesus was proclaiming, mission accomplished. There's a second way the word tetelestai was used. And it was commonly in the world of sports. 
The Greeks invented the Olympics, and when their athletes raced around the track in the ancient Olympic Games, the runner who crossed the finish line first would shout, Tetelestai! As he leaned forward and his body broke the tape, he would shout, Tetelestai! It is finished. It was a victory cry. The race had been won, and so when Jesus said it, he was proclaiming a victory, not a defeat. He had done it. He had been obedient to the Father all the way through death on a cross. Jesus had won and death was defeated. It was a victor's cry. Again, the Apostle Paul describes it this way. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over all these things through the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. It is finished. The debt is fully paid. The victory fully won. But the women didn't hear it that way. They didn't understand, couldn't comprehend what God was up to. On Sunday morning, they were not expecting to find the tomb open and empty. They were not expecting to encounter an angel. They were not prepared to hear the angel's three words, He has risen. If it is finished means the debt of sin has been paid in full and the curse of death has been defeated, then what does He has risen mean to those women and to us today? Something new was happening. The great Chinese Christian leader Watchman Nee once said, Our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. What is this new thing that comes because of these three words? Well, to be honest, he is risen. It's only one word in the Greek, just like it is finished. It's the word agertha. And it takes three English words to get it right. He has risen. What does it mean if Jesus was raised from the bed? It means that life is far more unpredictable than we ever thought. Unpredictable. It seems like the driving motivation in so many lives of people today is to be in control. Through science, through technology, through our intellect, through our efforts, we try to control the world around us, take, take charge of the physical world. And there's nothing beyond what we can see or smell or taste or touch. The whole idea of God, it's just a myth that comforts the simple-minded. Information is what's real, and all life's problems could be solved if we only had the right app, you know. Or throw enough tax money at it, and it's fixed. Or do we just create new levels of problems? We all seek a certain type of control over our lives. We do things that we can to be, make life predictable and safe, whether it's education, our investments, insurance, retirement. We want to live in a world of predictable cause and effect. People are even willing to give away their freedoms if the government will promise to make them feel safe, will promise to take care of them, give away their freedom of speech so that they don't have to deal with ideas that unsettle their world. We don't want any surprises, any challenges, nothing that might upset our lives. We want to live safely behind a thick wall of predictability. But the resurrection of Jesus crushes predictability. The resurrection shatters the idea that we can control our destiny. Dead men do not rise from the tomb. The laws of nature dictate that when a person dies, the body decomposes and that's it. That's what death does. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then the world as we know it is blown wide open. Natural law still operates for the most part, but the fact that natural law did not operate the way it was supposed to at this one crucial point in history means a great crack has split open this wall of predictability. The resurrection destroys the view that there's nothing beyond this world, this life, this dimension. 
I'm not saying that we give up on science or technology or never plan for the future, but make no mistake about it, a crack has opened in the wall of this secular worldview. He has risen. Jesus raised from the dead at a specific time in a specific geographical location at a specific point in real history. Not a myth, not a fable, not a fairy tale. means that there really is a God. If Jesus is risen, then he has clearly and resoundly shown his power over all nature and natural law. Jesus is who he said he was, the one and only Son, who is the only way to the Father. The good news of the gospel is that because he has risen, we can give up our feeble attempts to trying to be like God and control life or control the future. The good news is that we can give up the anxiety that we have in trying to make sure everything works out just the way we want it to. Have we ever calculated how much worry we spend trying to make sure this or that happens in our lives or in the lives of others? If we finally recognize, you know, we're not God, that life is more mysterious than we could ever have thought, that events are not in our control, but they are under God's control, that God is bigger than we ever imagined and more loving than we ever dreamed, well, then we could relax and trust that He is in control. He has risen means that with God all things are possible. You know, and it just feels good to finally come to the point in life when you know for certain that God has risen or Christ has risen because you realize you don't have to be God anymore. You don't have to be in control of everything. The uncertainties we face in this life are not uncertain in God's eyes. He sees it all. And Jesus coming out of the grave proves that God can do something about it. You see, true Christian faith cannot be contained in the vague religious language of our day. People kind of like the idea of God, but only if you keep it very, very vague. He is risen. Well, that pops the the all religions are essentially the same balloon. He is risen. That's very specific, too specific, because it makes a demand upon our lives. Because if Christ is risen, then we need to pay attention to everything he said, everything he taught. And what he taught was that he was the one and only path to God. And he requires a response from each one of us. A lot of people still don't get the message of Christ and our need for his grace. The former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, once described all the good things that he had done, all the social causes that he had championed. And he was quoted by the New York Times as saying, I'm telling you, if there is a God... When I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Man, he doesn't get it. Doesn't understand it is finished. Doesn't understand he is risen. Clueless. As clueless as the women on their way to the tomb. But a change took place in their lives. And that's what needs to happen in us. They came from the tomb changed. And this Easter morning, I hope that in some sense we can join in with this group of women as they ran back to Jerusalem with this new message. Join in the joy of discovering Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus didn't leave them in their clueless confusion. He didn't leave them wondering how to piece it together. Jesus later actually finds them, appears to them and says, Peace, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Those were the words they needed to hear. The risen Christ confirms the message of the angel with his own personal presence so that they could know it was true. Jesus brings them something absolutely new, a new kind of life based on his grace and the power of his risen presence. They came to the tomb feeling like life was over. They were numb with grief, consumed by despair. 
but they ran back to the garden gate with a new message of hope. They were sent. Go and tell my brothers, Jesus said to him. These women were the first to carry the message of new life in Christ. They were the first apostles. The word apostle means sent one. And these women were the first ones Jesus trusted to carry the message of the resurrection. They were the first ones Jesus sent. They were sent with the message of forgiveness and new beginning, the message of resurrection and hope. The risen Christ comes with living power. God's kingdom is here. They were to pick up where Jesus left off. They were sent to be ambassadors of this new kingdom. Uh, they were sent to bring healing for the hurting and light for the darkness, beauty transforming ugliness, to bring order to all the chaos, justice to the corruption, wholeness for the broken, and joy for all the sadness. Later, Jesus gave the same mission to the other disciples, John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I like the way Jesus' first words to the women and to the disciples were peace, do not be afraid. Of course they were afraid. Of course they felt inadequate for the job. Can you get them, imagine all the excuses just kind of bubbling up to the surface? You don't know what's happened to me, God. You don't know what I'm dealing with. I'm not ready. I don't know enough. I don't have the time. What are others going to think of me? I, I haven't really been living my life right, and now people will just think I'm a hypocrite. I could affect my career, my finances. It might bring stress into my relationships. And on and on and on our excuses flow. And into all their fears and hesitations and reasons why not, why they didn't want to step into being sent, into all their fears, Jesus said that one word, peace. Peace. Jesus sees in the women and in the disciples incredible kingdom potential if they could only see it for themselves. That's why he breathes on them, his, his breath, his pneuma, tells them to receive the gift of the Spirit. He sends them out, but he says, we're going to do it together. The Great Commission, it's a co-mission. Peace, we'll do it together. You know, you are a sent one if you're a follower of Christ. Jesus believes more in your potential than you do. He sees potential in you that you do not see. If Jesus were physically here this morning and you could look into his eyes, he would see in you the same kingdom potential that he saw in the eyes of the women and the disciples. You are a sent one. My Easter wish for you, for each of us, is that we would see, you would see yourself with the same potential as Christ sees in you. To see yourself as a sent one. Sent in his name right where you are, in your home, your neighborhood, your office, family, friends, your community, right where you are already, you are sent. Jesus is sending you there to be his man, to be his woman, to be his child, to represent him and his kingdom, to share the good news of his grace. We all have the same fears and excuses as the women at the tomb or the disciples in the upper room. Jesus comes to us, comes to the doubtful, the fearful, to the wounded, to the weary, to those who are running away. He comes to the inconsistent and the, the hesitant. And he says to us what he said back then, peace. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I mean, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then, then how can you go back to life as usual? I mean, you can't. Jesus, risen from the dead, has cracked open the universe as we know it. A shockwave has rattled through the world 
And the world is a different place. Your life is different. It's full of new possibilities that you never imagined. New power because of the risen Christ. And Christ is sending you with the good news of hope in his name. It is finished. He is risen. He is sending you. What are you waiting for? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on this Easter morning, we give you all the glory and praise as the risen one. The one who comes to us and comes to us confirming who you are as our Savior and as our Lord, but then also engaging us in your mission to bring the kingdom of God expressed in this world, Lord. Help us to be messengers of hope, sent ones, apostles, who are given this message of hope to share with the world. Help us to be eager to do that and to run, to run like the women. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.